Good evening. If you would grab your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel chapter 46. Lord willing, today we will cover chapter 46 through 48. and We will get it across the finish line if the Lord allows. Um, the balance that you try to walk in covering this much ground is you don't want to make light of God's Word or make it seem insignificant to, because it's far from that. But the other side of it is, sometimes we tend to read things into it when we stay parked on it quite too long. So I pray we see what's here for what's being said and take God at His Word. So the first chapter 46 and halfway through 47 really deals with sacrifices, the prince and the sacrifices he's going to offer. And halfway through 47, all the way through 48 is a division of the land. So I do think it'll go, you know, relatively smoothly. So, take that. There's some light at the end of the tunnel here. But I was thinking, uh, as I was getting ready, you know, in Second Peter, Peter writes, you know, Paul, when the Apostle Paul writes, there are some things in the Apostle Paul's writings that are hard to understand. And I'm sure the Apostle Paul looked at that like, Peter, have you never read Ezekiel, my man? <laughs> you know, how can you say what I write is difficult? But anyway, so let's get started. We'll begin in chapter 46. I'll just read the, the first verse, kind of getting started here. The first, Thus says the Lord God, The gate of the inner court that faces east shall be shut on the six working days, but on the Sabbath day it will be opened, and on the day of the new moon it shall be opened. Okay, so if you remember back, if you go back to chapter 44, we can read this. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary which faces east. This is 44.1. And it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vessel of the gate and shall go out by the same way. So chapter 44 is telling us that this eastern outer gate will remain shut. For the Lord has entered through it. Now the prince could come into it, but he would have to enter in through the vestibule. He would have to enter in through the outer court. But what we're having here in chapter 46 is what is referred to as the eastern inner gate. That's what we're seeing here. Not the outer gate. The outer gate's going to remain closed. The eastern inner gate is what we're referring to here. So back in chapter 46, verse 1, the gate of the inner court, see, the fate that faces east shall be shut on the six working days. But on the Sabbath day it shall be open. On the day of the new moon it shall be open. So I hope you see what we're discussing here. Now you see all this language of, of Sabbaths. Sabbath, right? This, this again will be taking us a step back since Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. And there are groups among us today who desire to place us back under the Sabbath, oddly enough. Even those groups, they, they, you never see them offering those sabbatical sacrifices that we read about in the law. You know, Numbers 28 to be specific. So the groups today that are trying to take us back up under those Sabbath laws, they're trying to enjoy the rest but they're ignoring the sacrifice that made the rest possible. And for the record, we're not under Sabbath law. 
Period. Colossians 2, New Testament book, Colossians 2. Paul writes this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. For these, talking about the new moons, the Sabbaths, all that, these are just a shadow of the things to come. But the substance is Christ. Christ fulfilled that for us. We're not taking a step back. Verse 2. The prince shall enter by the vestibule of the gate from the outside. Talk about the eastern inner gateway from the outside. He shall enter into the vestibule. And he shall take his stand by the post of the gate. The priest shall offer his burnt offering and his peace offering. And he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out but the gate shall not be shut until evening. So the priests here are going to take this prince's burnt offerings and his peace offerings, and they're going to prepare them, and they're going to offer them, and he's just going to kind of sit or stand there in the, by the post of the gate worshiping. So you may ask yourself, who is this prince? I think he was introduced to us last week. He's mentioned several times. We don't know who this prince is, but we know who he's not. We know he's not Jesus. This prince in no way can be referring to Jesus. We can know this from chapter 45, verse 22. It says, On that day the prince shall provide for himself and for all the people of the land a young bull for a sin offering. So the priest, I'm sorry, the prince is going to offer for himself a sin offering. No way possible that's referring to Jesus, right? The sinless son. We're told in this chapter, we'll get to it in verse 16, that this prince will have sons. We're told here that this prince does not enter the inner court. He's not performing the role of the priest. The priests are taking his burnt offering and his peace offerings and, and um, preparing them. But, but Jesus is our high priest, right? So again, this, this prince cannot be referring to Jesus, and we'll make this point again as we go a little further into the study. So the people of the land here are going to bow down at the entrance of the gate before the Lord on the Sabbath and on the new moon. So the, the priests are in there preparing this sacrifice. The prince is standing there. The people are outside, you know, worshiping, bowing down. The prince is really standing in a place as a mediator between the prince and the people. And here we're told in 4 through 7 what offering the prince is to bring. It's real specific here. Verse 4, The burnt offering that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And the grain offering with the ram shall be an ephah. And on the grain offering with the lambs shall be, much, shall be as much as he is able, together with a hen of oil to each ephah. On the day of the new moon, he shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish, and six lambs and a ram, which shall be without blemish. And as a grain offering, he shall provide an ephah with the bull and an ephah with the ram, and with the lambs as much as he is able, together with a hen of oil to each ephah. You see where this can get a little bit tedious, but in case you're wondering what a new moon is, you know, maybe, maybe you're not really familiar with a new moon, but a new moon is actually no moon. 
So if you look outside and you don't see a moon, you just see the outline of the moon, so to speak, that is what is called a new moon. It's the opposite of a full moon. That is what is called a new moon. A new moon happens once a month. And the Jews, being on a lunar calendar, this new moon would mark the beginning of a new month. That's what the new moon would kind of give them. That's the calendar they went by. So as the Sabbath brought the week to a close, the new moon would begin the month. That's what we're looking at. So in verse 8, as we move on, chapter 46, when the prince enters, he shall enter by the vestibule of the gate, and he shall go out by the same way. This is going to be slightly different than the way the people are going to enter and leave. We'll notice that as we read in verse 9. When the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feast, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out by the south gate. And he who enters by the south gate shall go out by the north gate. No one shall return by the, by the way of the gate by which he entered, but each shall go out straight ahead. So as they're coming in to worship through the north gate, go out the south gate. You come in through the south gate, you go out through the north gate. There is some order to this worship. There's, I'm sure there's, there's um, a plethora of people there worshiping, and so there would be some order so we didn't have a bunch of disarray inside the outer court. Verse 10 says, When they enter, the prince shall enter with them. And when they go out, he shall go out. The prince is not removed. He takes part alongside the crowd, alongside with the people. He's an example, I guess we could say, in worship is what we're reading here. So let's look in verse 11. And at the feast and at the appointed festivals, the grain offering with a young bull shall be an ephah, and with a ram, an ephah, and with the lambs as much as one is able to give, together with a hen of oil to an ephah, when the prince provides a freewill offering, either a burnt offering or a peace offering as a freewill offering to the Lord, the gate facing east shall be opened for him. He shall offer his burnt offering or his peace offering as he does on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go out. And after he's gone out, the gate shall be shut. So you remember how this chapter began. The east gate would remain shut with the exception of the weekly Sabbath and the new moon. Beginning of the month, we're talking about there. And now we're actually told that it will be open again whenever the prince chooses to make a voluntary offering. And then when he leaves, it will be shut. So before we move into verse 13, I hope we kind of understand the flow that as we ended chapter 45, we have the Passover sacrifice. We have the seven days of unleavened bread and all those sacrifices. That's what Todd went over last week. We open up chapter 46. We have the weekly Sabbath sacrifices. We have the monthly new moon sacrifices. We have the free will sacrifices and offerings. Then we get to verse 13. We're going to see the daily sacrifices, morning by morning by morning. Verse 13. You shall provide a lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning, you shall provide it. You shall provide a grain offering with it. Morning by morning, 
one-sixth of an ephah, one-third of a hen of oil to moisten the flour as a grain offering to the Lord. This is a perpetual statute. Thus the lamb and the meal offering and the oil shall be provided morning by morning for a regular burnt offering. You, you see the progression. We go from annual sacrifices to monthly sacrifices to weekly sacrifices to daily sacrifices. And now we turn to the year of Jubilee, what we see in verse 16. And in case some of you are a little bit unfamiliar with what the year of Jubilee is, the year of Jubilee occurred every 50th year. In every 50th year, all the slaves would be released. If they were indebted to their owners, they would be released. All debts would be forgiven. And all property would be returned to its original owners. That was what would happen at the year of Jubilee. So in verse 16, we're going to pick up on this. Thus says the Lord God, If the prince makes a gift to any of his sons, see this princess sons, if he makes a gift to any of his sons as an inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to or until the year of liberty. The year of liberty can be translated in the NIV as the year of freedom. The New American Standard has it as the year of release. The NLT actually has it as the year of jubilee, to which is what Charles Feinberg says this plainly points to. Charles Feinberg says, quote, This is undoubtedly referring to the year of jubilee, which concerned the reverting of property back to the original owners, end quote. This is what he's talking about here in this year of liberty. So if the prince gave an, a gift to his sons, it was theirs. It was his inheritance, he gave it to his sons. But if he gave the gift to his servants, it would only be his servants until the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year ever how that fell. Let's finish up verse 17. Then it shall revert back to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property, he shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. You see, the, the restrictions are placed here on the prince, that he's not to take property from the people to give to his son. He is to take the property that is his and give it to his sons, not, not to take theirs. So restrictions here are placed specifically on the prince. I'm sure they apply to others as well, but we read it here as the prince. And it says so that the people will not be taken advantage of, right? So that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. So again, this is another one of those questions for those who insist that Jesus is the prince. So if Jesus is his prince, there would need to be laws that restrict him from greed and oppression? Give me a break. There's no way Jesus is his prince. This prince is a man who's going to have a sinful nature, like ours, and he's going to have to be bound by these laws and restrictions that he can't do some of the greed and oppression and things that we read about all through the Old Testament. So now let's move on into some more fun stuff. Verse 19. Then he brought me through the entrance 
which is at the side of the gate, to the north row of the holy chambers for the priests. And behold, a place was there at the extreme western end of them. This is going to be on the western end there, the, the priest kitchens. That's what we're going to be looking at now. And he said to me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offerings and the sin offerings, and where they shall bake the grain offering, in order not to bring them out into the outer court and so transmit holiness to the people. You see it says here very plainly in verse 19, This place was at the extreme western end. So that is going to be the priest's kitchens we see there on the far left side of the screen. And then we move on in verse 21. Here we're going to pick up on these four kitchens that are at the four corners on that picture on the screen. Then he, this is going to be the guy who's been taking Ezekiel along with the tour the whole time. Then he brought me out to the outer court and he led me around to the four corners of the court. And behold, in each corner of the court, there was another court. In the four corners of the court, there were small courts, 40 cubits long, about 60 feet, 30 broad, about 45. The four were of the same size. Each four of those kitchens are going to be of the same size. And on the inside, around each of the four courts was a row of masonry with hearths made at the bottom of the rows all around then he said to me, These are the kitchens where those who minister at the temple shall boil the sacrifices of the people. So when the people would bring their sacrifices, those who minister at the temple would boil these in those four kitchens. So it does seem that these people who are cooking in these kitchens are, are, are not necessarily the priests, but they are those who minister there. Now, the one thing we do pick up on in this, in this chapter, with all these sacrifices and all this worship that's going on in this temple, there's a feel of both worship and fellowship, which is big. Worship and fellowship is what we see here. So now, 46, out of the way, let's move to 47. Okay, then he, being the, the guiding angel, only the, the guiding angel here, brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. When he brought me out by the way of the north gate, he led me around the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. So he notices here, that water is issuing from below the threshold of the temple, as we can see there. And so this, he brings them out, and they go all the way around to the east gate, and he notices at the east gate that there's water trickling from the south side of the east gate, which remains shut. So then he says in verse 3, going eastward with a measuring line, this is going to take him off into the Kidron Valley, going eastward, to a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. That's 1,500 feet. This man is measuring out as he goes, leaving the temple, going east. He's measuring this out. Verse 3, B. And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand cubits. That's another 1,500 feet. And he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand cubits. 
another 1,500 feet. He led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured 1,000 feet, or 1,000 cubits, which is another 1,500 feet. And it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? So this man, as he's measuring, and in, in, we see four increments here, he measures out roughly a mile. They go about a mile eastward as they're following this river. And it goes from a trickle, if you noticed, to ankle deep, to knee deep, to waist deep, to a point to where they couldn't even pass through. Without doubt, this river is supernatural. We're going to see this as we move in 6 through 12. I think it proves that. I think the details in this next section are going to show us that this is an actual river. It's not symbolic. There's so many people that take this and make symbolism galore with this. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can go with this, but I think it is an, an actual river. He talks about fishermen. He talks about fish and, and all these things, I think, which are intended to relate to us that this is not simply symbolism. So we'll read 6b. Then he led me back to the bank of the river because it was so deep, you know, he couldn't, couldn't swim through it. And as I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Araba and enters the sea. That's talking about the Dead Sea. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. The Dead Sea will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the, for the water that goes there, that the waters of the sea that may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Ingedi to and they will be a place for the spreading of the nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea. That's talking about the Mediterranean. But its swamps and its marshes will not become fresh. They are left for salt. So you see there's something supernatural about this water. Everything it touches becomes fresh, but when it comes to the marshes, the swamps, they're, they're, they remain left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river... They will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit, nor will their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Okay, so we've, we've got that. Now we're, now we're, I hope you don't expect much out of me from that one now, but let's move on to the division of the land here. The division of the land in verse 13 says this, Thus says the Lord God, This is the boundary by which you shall divide the land for inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions, and you shall, you shall divide equally what I swore to give to your fathers. This land shall fall to you as your inheritance. Okay, so plainly we see here, God is the one who declares the boundaries. God is the one who declares the boundaries, and this is the fulfillment of a promise that He had made to their fathers. And we notice, too, it, it will be divided equally. And you shall divide equally 
what I swore to your father. So we see we pick up on that. Now in 15 through 20, we get the overall boundaries of the land. Verse 15. This shall be the boundary of the land. On the north side, from the great sea, by way of Heathlon to Lebo Hamath, and on to Zedad, Barothath, Sibram, which lies on the border between Damascus and Hamath, as far as Hazer Hatukin, which is on the border of Huron. So the boundary shall run from the sea to Hazar Enan, which is on the northern border of Damascus, with the border of Hamath on the north, to the north. And this shall be the north side. So he's kind of giving you the northern boundary. And on the east boundary, the boundary shall run between Haran and Damascus, along the Jordan, between Gilead, and on the land of Israel, to the eastern sea as far as Tamar. This shall be the east side. There's your eastern boundary. On the south side, it should run from Tamar as far as the, west, as far as the waters of Marabah Kadesh, from there along the brook of Egypt to the Great Sea, the Great Sea being the Mediterranean. This shall be the south side. That's the southern boundary. On the west side, the Great, Sha- the great Sea shall be the boundary to a point opposite of Lebo Hamath. This shall be the west side. So now we have all four boundaries, north, east, south, west. Then he goes into verse 21. You shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as inheritance for yourself and for the sojourners who reside among you and have children among you. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. This is really unique here. So not only will strangers or sojourners be allowed to live in the land... It says they will be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Hmm. So now we have the boundaries and we have how the Lord is going to equally divide this thing out with the tribe of Joseph getting two portions. We're going to see it divided out here in chapter 48. This is going to be the division of the land to the north. Seven tribes. There are going to be seven tribes that going from the north down. These are the names of the tribes. This is 48.1. Beginning from the northernmost extreme, beside the way of Hethlon to Lebo Hamath, as far as Hazar Enon, which is on the northern border of Damascus over against Hamath, and extending from the east side to the west, Dan, one portion. Oh, so that language we see there from the east side to the west informs us that this land allotment runs east to west. So it's not just come gerrymandered um, allotment of land. It actually runs strategically from east to west. And we're starting at the north. The north is going to be Dan. Verse 2, And adjoining the territory of Dan, from east side to the west, Asher, one portion. So you have Dan and Asher. You see how this is going, just layer after layer, working their way south. Verse 3, adjoining the territory of Asher from the east side to the west, Naphtali, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Naphtali from east side to the west, Manasseh, one portion. 
adjoining the territory of Manasseh from the east side to the west, Ephraim, one portion, adjoining the territory of Ephraim from the east side to the west, Reuben, one portion, adjoining the territory of Reuben from the east side to the west, Judah, one portion. You see how this is just really detailed, really strategic, equally done. And then we get in 8 through 22, we have what is called the holy portion. The holy portion. I think this was in Todd's sermon last week, so I'm sure y'all are on the tip of your tongue here. Verse 8. Adjoining the territory of Judah from the east side to the west shall be the portion which you shall set apart. 25,000 cubits in breadth and in length equal to one of the tribal portions from the east side to the west with a sanctuary in the midst of it. So this is a holy portion. The portion that you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 20,000 cubits in breadth. These shall be the allotments of the holy portion. The priest shall have an allotment measuring 25,000 cubits on the northern side, 10,000 cubits in breadth on the western side, 10,000 in breadth on the eastern side, and 25,000 in length on the southern side with the sanctuary in the with the sanctuary of the Lord in the midst of it. This shall be for the, for the consecrated priest, the sons of Zadok, who kept my charge, who did not go astray when the people of Israel went astray, as the Levites did. It shall belong to them as a special portion from the holy portion of the land, a most holy place adjoining the territory of the Levites and alongside the territory of the priests, the Levites shall have an allotment 25,000 cubits in length, 10,000 cubits in breadth. The whole length shall be 25,000 cubits in breadth, 20,000. Verse 14, they shall not sell or exchange any of it. They shall not alienate this choice portion of the land, for it is holy to the Lord. The remainder, verse 15, the remaining... The remainder 5,000 cubits in breadth and 25,000 in length shall be for common use for the city, for dwelling and for open country in the midst of it shall be the city. And these shall be its measurements. The north side, 45,000 cubits. The south side, 45,000. The east side, 45,000. The west side, 45,000. And the city shall have open land. On the north, 250 cubits. On the south, 250 cubits. On the east, 250, and on the west, 250. You see the detail here. The remainder of the length alongside the holy portion shall be 10,000 cubits to the east and 10,000 cubits to the west, and it shall be alongside the holy portion. Its produce shall be food for the workers of the city, and the workers of the city from all the tribes of Israel shall till it. The whole portion that you shall set apart shall be 25,000 cubits square. That is the holy portion together with the property of the city. Verse 21. What remains on, on both the side of the holy portion and on the property of the city shall belong to the prince, extending from the 25,000 cubits of the holy portion to the east border and westward from the 25,000 cubits to the west border, parallel to the tribal portions. It shall belong to the prince. The holy portion of the sanctuary of the temple shall be in its midst. It shall be separate from the property of the Levites and the property of the city, which are in the midst of that which belongs to the prince. The portion of the prince shall lie between the territory of Judah and the territory of Benjamin. 
Okay, now he's gone from the holy portion. Now he's going to work south. He's going to continue to work south. There's five more tribes to go, working south. Verse 23, as for the rest of the tribes, from the east side to the west, Benjamin, one portion. So you see this holy portion is sandwiched between Judah and Benjamin. Verse 24, adjoining the territory of Benjamin from the east side to the west, Simeon, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Simeon from the east side to the west, Issachar, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Issachar from the east side to the west, Zebulun, one portion. Adjoining the territory of Zebulun from the east side to the west, Gad, one portion. And adjoining the territory of Gad to the south, the boundary shall run from Tamar to the waters of the Marab, the Marabah, Kadesh, and from there alongside the brook of Egypt to the great sea. This is the land that you shall allot as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, and these are their portion, declares the Lord God. So ever how he divides, uh, divides this out, some of these markers are not really even known today. We do know it's equally done, and it's done by the Lord himself. It's not done through casting of lots or something like that we would see in, in Joshua. So as we move on, we read the gates of the city. In verse 30, it says, There shall be... There shall be the exits of the city on the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure. That's a mile and a quarter. So the north side of the city here is a mile and a quarter long. Verse 31, there should be three gates. <clears throat> the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi. The gates of the city named after the tribes of Israel. And look, there will be a gate named Levi. I hope you picked up on that. He didn't receive an allotment of land, but he did receive a gate because he is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 32, and on the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, that's again a mile and a quarter, three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. There's one gate after named after Joseph here, right? They, he had two portions of land, Ephraim and Manasseh. He gets one gate. Verse 33, on the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, the gate of Zebulun. And on the west side, which is 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, the gate of Nephthah. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. That's just math done for us. That's a little more than five miles in circumference. If you were to walk the city, you'd go a little bit more than five miles around the circumference of the city. And we close it out in verse 35. And the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord Yahweh is there. This is the one fact. This is the one statement that makes this temple and the city desirable is that God is there. Right? This is it. God had left Jerusalem. But this is what they're looking for. Somewhere that God would be. So with that, we close our study of the book of Ezekiel. The book began with an exiled people in a foreign land, right? They're foreign. They're strangers. They're aliens in a foreign land in Babylon as exiles. Chapter 1 begins with Ezekiel seeing a vision of God in all His glory. Then we move to chapter 2, Ezekiel is called to be a prophet. Chapter 3, he's duty-bound to be a faithful watchman. And then he begins to just stress the inevitable. 
that Jerusalem will fall. They complain, of course. They're unjustly judged in their mind. But no, Ezekiel stresses the fact that they're being rightly judged. They were wicked. They were sinful people from the lay people to the leaders. And the Lord could stomach it no more. And in chapter 10, the Lord leaves the temple. The people are so numb to God and the things of God, they don't even realize this. So they sit there with a ravaged city, perverted worship in an empty temple. God is nowhere to be found, right? That's where chapter 10 ends. But as early as the next chapter, as early as chapter 11, God promises to gather them and to return to them. He doesn't leave them hopeless, you know, long. He promises to be their God and they would be His people. And this would never happen through the old covenant. So God promises the new covenant, what we call a unilateral covenant, where He will act on their behalf. This is a unilateral covenant. He's acting for His name's sake. Then it seems like to drive their need for Him home, he reminds them over and over and over the next several chapters of how good he was to them. How he had just found them as that infant lying in his blood and cleaned them up and made them his. How good God was to the nation of Israel. You know, they ignore this. Judgment is not averted. Jerusalem does fall as God had promised. And then beginning as early as chapter 33, over the next eight chapters, the Lord begins to comfort them. And He comforts them with this fact, that His promises to them stands. Again, all this is New Covenant language. That He alone would gather where He had scattered. He would lead them, He would feed them, He would protect them, He would plant them by the land. And then beginning in chapter 40 through 48, we have this section on the temple that we've been in for the last, I guess, five weeks. And this section is by far the most debated, the most misunderstood. And then that's okay, you know, not to have all the answers. I do feel like, though, as we went through it, I really feel like we've preached, we've faithfully preached this passage in context. We tried to view everything here through the lens of the totality of Scripture as whole. And the fact that we keep running into the, um, the truth that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled these sacrificial requirements of the law. So that, that is something we have to see as we're, as we're trying to interpret what we're reading here, 40 through 48. But I, I do know, don't, don't allow what we don't know to cause us to overlook what we do know. You know, don't take the, the last eight chapters that... that are really kind of um, easily misunderstood and really hard to really get down and discern and just kind of throw away the beginning 39 chapters that are just so, so good. Because just like the people in Ezekiel's day, we too stand guilty. I pray that we don't do like the people in Ezekiel's day. We don't excuse our guilt. We don't minimize our sins. Because just like them, their hope and ours is in the new covenant blood of Jesus Christ. And a greater portion of this book emphasizes that, not the parts we like to debate. That's the message of Ezekiel, that God will act for His name's sake. He acted in judgment. 
But again, He is a God of mercy. He is a God who's faithful to His covenant. And He acts again in a unilateral way through the new covenant to bring them into a right relationship with Him. That God, the God that Ezekiel portrays is a faithful, covenant-keeping, loving, forgiving, patient God. That's what we need to take away from Ezekiel. Don't just get caught up and like to, you know, debate the things that are unclear. Look at the big picture of what Ezekiel is painting. How they were, they were exiled for their sin, rightly so. But God has not cast them away. God is faithful to His Word and He will gather where He had scattered. And he will redeem them and plant them and shepherd them and feed them and heal them. And everything that we could ask for and more. So I pray we've concluded this study of Ezekiel and uh, it's been enjoyable. Look forward to the, the next one. I hope to see you here next Wednesday. I think we will begin to tackle the gospel according to Matthew. So get ready. Let's go. Would please stand.